Welcome to season three of Healthcare Reimagined, the Society for Healthcare Innovations podcast series. Our goal is to showcase innovation in the private sector, as well as within provider and payer organizations and government entities. On Healthcare Reimagined, we share insights from clinicians, entrepreneurs, healthcare executives, and business and political leaders who are innovating and reimagining the delivery of healthcare in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to episode five of season three of the Healthcare Reimagined podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Stephen Clasco, who is a transformative leader and advocate for a revolution in our systems of healthcare and higher education. As the president of Thomas Jefferson University and CEO of Jefferson Health from 2013 to 2021, he led one of the nation's fastest growing academic health institutions. Under his leadership, Jefferson expanded from three hospitals to 18. Its revenue grew from 1.8 to 9 billion. Dr. Clasco has been featured on Becker's Hospital Review's 100 Great Leaders in Healthcare, and in 2018 was number two on Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential Individuals in Healthcare. He's also the author of Unhealthcare, a manifesto for health assurance with Silicon Valley investor Himant Tanasia. As an executive in residence at General Catalyst, Dr. Clasco is now pursuing his vision of creative reconstruction of healthcare to address health inequities. Thank you for being on the podcast, Dr. Clasco. No, it's really my pleasure. I'm excited to be uh, talking about healthcare at what I think is uh, the dawn of a very different age for the United States. Certainly agree. And and just turning back the clock a little bit to the uh, 80s and 90s when you were a practicing OBGYN, did you have aspirations of running a health system one day or was this kind of a, a path that revealed itself to you in time? You know, I started out in private practice in a small town, Allentown, Pennsylvania, um, and really had never done anything academically. And then in the 80s, you know, 97% of, of OBGYNs were male. The number one performed procedure in the country was hysterectomy and C-section was number two. And I happened to listen to, as I remember him, a very old professor. Now that I think about it, it's probably my age now, but that's a little depressing. But he um, he was talking about hysterectomy. He said, if you see a small fibroid on the uterus, just take out the uterus because a woman doesn't need that after she's reached uh, childbearing age. And um, I happened to be at Barnes & Noble that night, and four of the top 10 nonfiction bestsellers were what my hysterectomy did to me, the hysterectomy hoax, how a hysterectomy ruined my life. So, you know, I just left my private practice, went into academic medicine, did some of the work that we now use to avoid hysterectomy. And, you know, it was just the beginning of, a, of aha moments that healthcare is pretty messed up. And, um, you know, not that I'm going to change it, but that individuals can can make a change. A similar thing happened in the 90s when I decided to go to Wharton because I was tired of um, as I was building my academic career, all these brilliant academic researchers and clinicians talking about how they couldn't handle the business or the or the uh, healthcare wasn't a business or the, the insurers were getting them. So I went to Wharton and. Got a large grant at that time when I graduated to look at what makes doctors different than depending on the audience, either other people or normal people in, in how we handle change. So, so I think that the, the, the simple answer is just about every job I've taken, whether it was the dean at Drexel or the dean and CEO at University of South Florida, which interestingly is not in South Florida, or the, even the, uh, the last job I took at, uh, as the president and CEO of, um, 
of, of Jefferson. Every, I had really smart people telling me not to take because they were impossible. <laughs> and uh, in fact, my, my first commencement speech at Jefferson was um, I didn't quote Aristotle. I didn't quote my minds. I quoted an Adidas commercial that my wife had worked on. It was impossible. It's just a small word thrown around by small men and women that don't want to do the hard work to do the impossible. Possible is potential. Impossible is nothing. So simply put, uh, health care in 2022 for health systems is impossible. And it's a great time to be in healthcare because it's impossible. Well, I, we're definitely going to dive into that. But moving forward a little bit, Jefferson created a, a center in Rome in partnership with one of the world's top hospitals, I think Gemelli Hospital. What was the impetus for that? Speaking of non-conventional. <laughs> well, really, the impetus for that was when I was the dean at Drexel, Jefferson was having uh, some pretty significant um um, trouble with their liver transplant program. So I brought in a guy named Dr. Bill Myers and sort of really killed the Jefferson program, uh, in a Game of Thrones mode. But then they brought in this guy named Ignaz, Dr. Ignacio Marino from the Starzl Institute at UPMC. And he really resurrected the Jefferson program. We became friendly. And then he went and became a senator in Italy and then the mayor of Rome. So, um, when, you know, I went to visit him while I was the mayor of Rome and, you know, I offered him a job. I offered him a job literally at dinner and it was like, well, what job do you have an opening? I said, no, but I want you to be like in charge of everything cool and international. We'll call it the, you know, executive vice president for all the stuff that I want to do that I haven't done yet. And, um, um, he, he amazingly took that job and, uh, it turned into an executive vice president for international affairs. And, you know, he, he really created this amazing relationship with us with, uh, with, uh, Gemelli Hospital, um, which is a top hospital in Italy and Catholic University, which is the Pope's university. And then Ignazio really, uh, opened up doors, uh, really throughout the world. One of the really interesting things about healthcare, just, just because I know you have a very thoughtful audience is, um, it's the only thing that's not global, right? I mean, if you think about it, if you're like the CEO for Shanghai Bank or the CEO for uh, uh, Italy Marriott and you come to the United States, you can, you, you know, if you're good, you can be the CEO of anything. If you're like the chair of cardiovascular surgery in Shanghai or Italy and you come here, we make you retake your residency. <laughs> not only that, not only that, anything that's not done in this, in this country, like that surgery or drugs, that's done like in, in Asia or whatever, we consider alternative healthcare and weird, but it's, but it's basically what takes care of two thirds of the world's people. It's not like we look at that in any other thing. If something works in banking or finance or hospitality in Asia, we say, Oh, we, we should, we should learn from that over here and vice versa, except for healthcare. So, you know, one of the things we did at Jefferson is that we, we, we got almost a hundred million dollars from Bernie Marcus to create the Marcus Center for Integrative Health, which is taking the best of not alternative health, not weird health, but health, healthcare that, that, that's done throughout the world. And that isn't just drugs and surgery, uh, around some very chronic diseases. When I was in India for a few weeks, I hurt my back. I'm a long distance runner and I wanted to just get a flexor on a Motrin. I went to the academic medical center there and they said, well, what we'll do, we'll do acupuncture puncture and Ayurvedic medicine. And I said, well, I, I really just wanted a flexural and a Motrin. Oh, well, then you have to go over to this corner over there where there's this weird American doctor that actually gives drugs for stuff like that, that we can treat more holistically. <laughs> so, so, you know, I think we have to recognize that, you know, this is a really tough thing for some people to swallow, but we don't have all the answers and we don't even have the best healthcare system in the world when it comes to actually taking care of people and health equity. 
Well, if you're in the top 1%, we do. If you're in the bottom 1%, the life expectancy is similar to Sudan or Pakistan. 100%. And it's, it's interesting that you brought up kind of how how healthcare looks different in different places. It's nice that we like to draw these lines across international borders, but diseases don't draw lines. When COVID hit, it, it swept across the world. And from what I remember, I think it was early February where Jefferson called for crisis preparation by your 14 hospitals. That was pretty far ahead of the curve. Was your hospital in Italy, the canary in the coal mine, so to speak? So we had some real heroes. I mean, a lot of real heroes at Jefferson. And um, one of them was our whole pandemic preparedness team. We had three things that really had us um, probably better than almost any place else in the country ready for this. We had, we had invested back in 2013, 2014, almost $50 million in telehealth and brought in a team, Kristen Rising and Judd Hollander and, and, and others to create Jeff Connect, which was one of the only specialty run health telehealth system. And it became one of the largest systems in the country in telehealth back in 2014 and 2015. Um, so we were ready for that piece. Then the second thing that we had done, it was led with some, some real heroes on our infectious disease side was when Ebola hit, and we had started this pandemic preparedness thing. We didn't just give it up when we said Ebola did not become the big one, right? Um, we kept that going and we recognized that if anything ever did hit us, we were going to need PPE, et cetera. So, I mean, we had something like six to eight months of PPE when the average in Philadelphia was six weeks. And, you know, we had it stored and we were ready and, you know, we had done all these uh, drills of, you know, what if there was an airborne pandemic, et cetera, that, 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 that would hit us like that. And the third thing you mentioned, you know, if you remember in, in 2020, like it was January, February, it hit Italy and Italy got decimated uh, with the pandemic. And that was back when, you know, Frankly, we still weren't sure what it meant. President Trump was saying the China virus will never come here because it's scared of us. Um, Dr. Fauci was tell was telling people not to wear masks. Um, but we really got like, you know, uh, thanks to Ignacio and people like Walter Ricciardi, we really got sort of a, a preview of coming uh, attractions. Um, and we were talking to Italy literally, you know, on, on an ongoing basis. Ignacio was talking to them every day. Um, and um, so we we sort of uh, we sort of understood what was going to happen and understood that some of the things that we were being told uh, might not be exactly uh, the right answer. So, yeah, I think we I think we were um, uh, we were ahead of the curve. It certainly wasn't me. It was it was a lot of the heroes uh, um, at Jefferson. I mean, I think us beginning the whole healthcare at any address or health assurance piece well before anybody else really played well in the pandemic. Cause our whole model, as you said, was to get care out as close as we can to where people are. Um, we weren't predicting the pandemic, but we were predicting that someday that might matter. So we were really probably much more ready for that than, than hospital driven, you know, academic driven entities. Certainly. And, and just broadly speaking, I mean, what, what was it like to run a hospital through a pandemic? It was both horrible and it was probably the most gratifying time as a leader. So um, it was horrible because, you know, people always say, what'd you, Steve, what did you learn from the pandemic? And, and the sad piece is we didn't learn anything we didn't know. So we knew that we had a fragmented, expensive, inequitable and broken system. And it, it, it's sort of interesting, I think, Corey, that um, 
I was on CNN and, and, and there was this, um, somebody said, you know, what'd you learn? I said, well, I think I, the pandemic taught us that Bernie Sanders was 100% right about the solution and 100% wrong about the problem. So what do you mean? I said, well, when, when, when Senator Sanders says, you know, we have this corporate driven system that, you know, is going to kill people that are underserved. I mean, the number one reason you died. It, it during the pandemic was your zip code, not your genetic code, not whether you wore a mask and not know whether you're socially distanced. I mean, think of, think about a system, the richest country in the world, where if you were in North Philadelphia and we we're the home of Comcast and you have five academic medical systems. But if you were the home, of, uh, uh, if you were in North Philadelphia and you didn't have good broadband. And you were listening to CNN on the TV or whatever. And you said, don't go to the hospital in March of 2020, you know, because you'll get COVID. And, you know, you know, you know, if you have to, you know, get on telehealth or whatever. And you didn't have broadband to get on Jeff Connect or Penn Connect or Temple Connect. And you had chest pain. You, you might have your wife, your husband, your partner say, you know what, just go to sleep because we're not supposed to go to the hospital. And you died. You know, um, so he was 100 percent right about, gosh, you know, he got that right. I think the vaccine distribution of having every city, every county, every state have different vaccine distribution laws proved they were 100 percent wrong of let's just have a Medicare for all. And, you know, hope the federal government, the state governments, the city governments, the county governments and the regional governments will all get together and sing Kumbaya. I don't think that's going to work. So, look, I think. At Jefferson, we had the trifecta, the pandemic. We, at one point, Jefferson was was down about a billion dollars at the same time that the insurance companies we worked with were having record profits. So that was one. The second thing was just the toll on lives and just the toll on our healthcare workers. It's the only war we've ever had that the war stayed with you when you go home. Mm-hmm. If you think about nurses that were literally going to, to the hospital and risking their lives or, or environmental service workers or cleaning rooms and risking their lives and then having to go home and basically being told, you know what, you really shouldn't play with your child um, if you've been directly exposed to COVID folks. So they were like trying to play with their child across screens. So you had that human toll um, and the stress on our, on, our, on our workers. And then the third thing is, you know, we're right in the middle of all the George Floyd um uh, uprisings and and concern, legitimate concern for systemic racing, not racism, not just in healthcare. At Jefferson, we have a very diverse workforce. You know, we have we had acquired Philadelphia University, which is very very diverse fashion design school. We're named Thomas Jefferson, which for um, you know about 197 of our years was good, and you know for a couple <laughs> years was very controversial. Um, so you know we were dealing with all of that, and you know we made some really really tough decisions, Corey. We we made a decision at one point not to um, not to lay off or furlough any of our 35,000 employees. Probably one of the five or six percent of health systems in the country that did that, and you know. I mean, I give my board at that time a lot of credit because they allowed us to do it. I'm not sure they, you know, it, it was a it was a very controversial decision, but they certainly allowed us to do that. And that put us in really good stead when, when things started to come back, that we had the employees that we needed, et cetera. But we we lived on three principles and three values that really came to fore. Radical collaboration. You know, so we were talking to everybody. One of my Wharton study group members uh, and really good friends was Alex Skorsky, who was the CEO of J&J at the time. We were talking all the time about their their trials and ours, et cetera. Radical collaboration with former competitors, et cetera. Radical communication. You know, I started my career as a DJ. Every, every Friday, 
you know, I would send out with Michael Hode, my communications person, a playlist. And those playlists were sustaining for our employees. Even during the George Floyd things, we would, that would be our way of communicating. I remember that playlist had things like Choice of Colors and This Is My Country by Curtis Mayfield. And then folks, uh, employees would send back, well, for your next week, you should include this from Gil Scott Hurt. It started, it started a conversation around music that would have been hard to have with 35,000, uh, employees in a, in a very tough time. And then radical concentration on health disparities. We started the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity that really got people, people back. And then, and then our three values were be bold and think different, put people first and do the right thing. And every single day, I went to all the incredible people that were working for us and doing this every day and saying, what are we doing to put people first? What are we doing to do the right thing? And what are we doing to be bold and think different? And, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that I think Jefferson um, um, was a leader in, in, in a very, very, very difficult time. We did a very interesting partnership with Aramar called Eversafe. Um, you know, we worked with General Catalyst and, and Lovongo and Glenn Tolman and others uh, around things that we could do. Uh, we worked with Color Genomics that went from, you know, has been a partner for a long time. But we were one of the first health systems in the country to um, uh, to offer all our employees free uh, clear genomic testing. But they then went to COVID testing. So, look, we we, we it was it was it was not anything that any of us bought into. We worked harder um than we ever worked uh but i feel good that we led and we didn't follow hans anderson once said that where words fail music speaks and i think when you're talking about issues as complicated as race and equality words are insufficient what a beautiful idea to use music as a way of connecting with people going back to your first point covid didn't teach us anything that we didn't know We've long known that it's silly that you can drive your car from New York to New Jersey with the same driver's license, but you need a different license to practice medicine in different states. Uh, and, and so just as an example from my own work at Leverage Health, we operate the nation's largest credentialing company, Verisys. And so we saw firsthand the opportunity to break down state lines and how much friction the emergency protocols reduced. Would love to get your take on where you think legislation is going related to credentialing and if those changes will hold. Um, so, you know, one of my mentors, Corey, is a guy named Bill Kissick. He was a professor at Wharton and he wrote a book, I think it was like 40 years ago called Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. And 40 years ago, he, he was the first guy to talk about the iron triangle of access, quality and cost. If you increase one angle, you got to decrease another. So he said, if anybody ever tells you you're going to increase access, increase quality and decrease cost, and it's not going to be painful to somebody in the ecosystem, they're not telling the truth. <laughs> So if you want to look at how messed up policy has been in the last 12 years, when the ACA came out, President Obama said, good news, the ACA will increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and it won't be painful. Well, that can't be true. I think President Trump said his plan will be fantastic, terrific, unbelievable, and really huge, and it was none of the four. So, <laughs> so the simple fact is, to your point about credentialing, nobody, nobody wants to get at the root causes of these things, right? It would be like, it's, it, the best way to look at this is like, healthcare has secondary syphilis and it has a rash on its back and we're treating the rash. Right. You know, so, so yes, if you look at telehealth, there, you know, I can practice, I'm an OBGYN, I can practice because I'm nationally boarded in like 48 states, um, actually 49, because I also have a, a license in Florida. 
but I can only do telehealth in about 15 or 16 states. Now, why is that? Well, because certain state boards don't want others, other state doctors coming into their, their, their territory. So think about banking, right? Think about if, if uh, when ATMs, you know, help banking be banking at any address, if you needed a different ATM card for every state, you think that would have worked real well? I mean, you think I'd want to walk around with like 50 ATM cards? Um, you know, so no, I mean, so, so there were, there were things that were done that made it easier to go across state lines on credentialing. Look, I mean, you know, in my, in my role, um, at, at the GC, we've talked to credentialing companies also. And, and there's one company out of Israel that, that just couldn't believe, you know, Hey, wh- why can't we get traction in certain places? Well, think about it. There are insurers, you know, Jefferson did six mergers in six years, right? We went from two hospitals to 18 hospitals. Okay. So now they're all Jefferson. So what should happen is we be, we should be able to work with a company like yours or, or this company that I was advising that, that, you know, why should it take six weeks to get somebody credentialed with Independence Blue Cross, United, Aetna, whoever, right? Well, I mean, it shouldn't. They've already been credentialed. Everything's out there in the cloud. Unless there was a problem, you know, we should work with companies like you and do it in 48 hours. But aha, why doesn't that just become universal? Because, you know, some of the insurance companies really aren't in a big rush to get that doctor credential with Jefferson. Right. Because they might look and say, oh, we'd have to pay him more if he's with Jefferson. Or in some cases, if he's not credentialed, we don't have to pay at all. So we have this just ridiculous, ridiculous, insane system that, you know, where, where insurers are getting 17 cents on the dollar to make sure the people that pay for the care, get the care and provide the care can't talk to each other. And, you know, and by the way, we all share the blame. So, you know, th- this segment, I, you know, I, I can. We could talk about insurers, we could talk about providers, we could talk about the fact that orthopedic surgeons make 15 times what, what family practice people make, but we want the family practice people to be the quarterback of a new system. We can talk about uh, PBMs, which are a ridiculous layer. We can talk about generic drugs, right? I mean, if you want to look at what's insane about our system, you know, the only reason Martin Shrekley is in jail is because he bought the Wu-Tang Clan album. But basically, you know, every generic drug company pretty much does pretty much the same thing is is gets the prices down and then elevates the prices. So I think I think if if the pandemic didn't get people angry, look, and it's a system problem. It's not I, I want to make this clear. It's not the CEO of the hospitals or CEO of pharma or the CEO of of of, of insurers or CEO of even PBMs. That's. That's the rule book they were given. But any any system, if you came down from Mars and said, let me get this straight. You had a pandemic. People died because they didn't get care, predominantly of color, predominantly underserved. And because they didn't get the care, there was a sector of the healthcare economy called insurers that quadrupled their net operating income because they had actually thought that they would actually get care, but instead they died and didn't get care. And that was really a good thing. So we paid all their executives lots of bonuses because they did really well. Oh, and by the way, the people that were providing that care heroically really got, you know, their salaries cut and stuff because they weren't getting paid in a very sick care model that they only get paid if people come to the hospital. Now, if you were on Mars and you told somebody that kind of system exists, you must you would think that that was like a post Big Bang developing planet. 
but it happens to be a developed country in in you know and one of the richest countries in the in the world. And I know that sounds a bit histrionic and hyperbolic, but it's it's actually true. You know, if the shortstop is taught that with a guy on first, when a ball comes to the infield, he's supposed to throw the ball to first base. It's not the shortstop's fault when he doesn't make the double play. It's the coach. I think about healthcare the same way. It's easy to dismiss all insurance companies and executives as evil, but the truth is always more nuanced than that. There's no black and white when it comes to issues this big. I've had the pleasure of working with some incredible patient-centric folks in healthcare, but they work within a broken system with convoluted incentives, and we all need to work to fix that. And to the people who say change is not possible, I would say look at the Inflation Reduction Act, where there's a provision that allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices with pharmaceutical manufacturers, right? Progress is possible. This was part one of what will be a two-part episode with Dr. Klasko. Next week, we will be discussing some of the systemic issues in U.S. healthcare, starting with the discussion about behavioral health. We will cover the concepts of unscaling healthcare at any address and Dr. Clasco's vision and prediction for the future of U.S. healthcare. Thank you for listening to the Healthcare Reimagined podcast. You can learn more about the Society for Healthcare Innovation by visiting our website at shci.org. If you like today's podcast, please click the subscribe button to stay up to date with all our latest content. And if you like today's podcast episode, please send it to others that you think might enjoy it.